How are you this evening? No volume, bro? I know I get loud, but it's not that bad, right? You good? There we go. That's better. Can you thank God with me for his word tonight? Do, do you know how blessed we are to have this word? Do you know how many Christians have lived through ages and they just wish that they had had one book or one chapter of the scripture. I think about that, how many people have given their life so that the scripture could go to the common man. I love John Wycliffe, one of um, my heroes. He said to the powers that be, when I have my way, the plowboy is going to know more of the scriptures than your priests do. And it happened. And he was killed for it. He lost his life. Huss, a whole line of them that because they wanted to get the word of God into the hands of the common person to be able to read it. Hey, here we have, how many English translations are there? I mean, it's incredible. Um, I have over 100 in my library, different ones. And it's, there, there's lots more than that. We're so blessed with this word. This is, this is treasure. This is treasure. That has eternity in it. Can you just thank God with me? Can you just lift your hands? Let's thank the Lord. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your holy word. It is treasure, Lord. We say with David, oh, how I love your law. It is better to me than thousands of silver and gold pieces. It is like honey on my mouth. It is precious. It is the meditation of my heart when I lay on my bed at night. Oh, how precious is your word, Lord. Thank you for blessing us with it. We reach out to you now. We ask you through the Holy Spirit to teach us to take the words that you breathed into this book and breathe them now, even this night, inside of us as well. Lord, I pray that the word would be engrafted in us, that it would take root in us, that it not be head knowledge, but that it be life knowledge that is rooted to us and connected to us from now throughout all of eternity. Let it be so, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. James chapter 4. I think um, tonight we'll, we'll do five verses. Is my um, hope. We finished um, verse 5 last week, this passage in, in the first part of um, James 4, talking about um, you adulteresses and adulterers. We talked about the jealousy of God. Um, last time, and I want to pick up at verse 6, I want to read verses 6 through 10, and uh, there's, there's just a lot in here that we want to talk about. So verse 6, but he gives greater grace. So just remember the context here is that he's calling on the people, verse 4, he says, you adulteresses and adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world is what? Enmity, he makes you an enemy of God, so he's got a pretty strong rebuke um, going on here. Uh, I love James because he's very straightforward and he tells it just the way he sees it, and that appeals to me a lot. I, I want to um, know exactly what he's saying, and he doesn't pull any punches. He says it straight up. He gives you a sucker punch right in the gut, um, but it's for our own good. Amen. Okay, 
but he gives greater grace. So he's talking in the context here of them um, provoking God to jealousy because of their uh, love for the world. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the opposed to the proud. So you guys know that, that word opposed that's used in this verse is a military word, and it means that God has his armies in a front taken up in front of you. He's resisting you. How many know that's not a good place to be? How many have ever been resisted in your life by God? You, you, you can't say that? I can definitely tell you that I have been. <laughs> he resisted me in my business at the start really bad and um, made it so that it would not prosper no matter what. All of my great cleverness and uh, ability and all of that, it, it wouldn't, because he was trying to get at something different. And I told you the story before that he said to me, um, this business is a monument to your own nothingness. Now you know what you can do without me. And um, it wasn't good. It wasn't much. Um, I very often worked for 12 weeks or 10 weeks, 60 hours a week, and made $0 for myself. Paid all of the broken equipment. Um, paid the guys. Paid my bills barely, but had nothing left. Um, that went on for a while. And um, I had to get into divine order. And it was the mercy of the Lord that he resisted me in that way. But I, I'm good with that not happening again. Um, so hopefully I learned that lesson a little bit. Uh, I don't want to be resisted by God. He, you know what? He doesn't lose. Like he, he's 10 million and oh, he, he doesn't lose. And so um, if we get ourselves in divine alignment in a place where his blessing is on us, and where is that place? It's, it's not the place of pride, but it's the place of humility. So if, if we could get this through our head, it's, it's not only in our relationships with each other, which the Bible is very clear about, that our default needs to be what? Go low. When there's conflict in relationships, the first default that comes into our mind should be, how can I humble myself here? How can I humble myself? How can I own the situation? Even if, how many know that our usual perception where there's uh, conflict in relationships is that we're 10% responsible and they're 90% responsible? Come on. It's true. We see our own perspective in it. But whatever percentage it is, only God really knows because our perspective is usually skewed. But whatever percentage it is, here's what you have to know. If you take ownership of your own stuff in the midst of that relationship that's causing conflict, then God's grace will come in because he always gives grace to the humble. If we fight and have to say, no, you own up to your 90% first, and then maybe I'll own up to my 10, it doesn't usually work out well. How many know that's true? Somebody has to take the initiative, and, and like the Lord uh, told my wife uh, in a situation that was with my mother, it was a mother-in-law thing, um, that was stressful. Uh, Diane, um, in order for there to be reconciliation, somebody has to die. And um, that death means I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to swallow it. Those words sometimes come hard, but that's the wisdom of God. In but it's also in our relationship with each other. Do you know this same passage is quoted, the same words are quoted in 1 Peter 5? And in that context, he's talking about all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, right? So the context of relationship with other people, the same thing applies. He quotes the exact same scripture. Humble yourself. This is how you get through. This is how you get grace in relationships. You humble yourself. And in James chapter 4 here, he's talking about in relation between us and God. So what we do is we humble ourselves in order to get grace. Same principle applies whether it's relationships or whether uh, with people or whether with God. 
our default should be what? Okay, I'm, I'm looking for a response there. Our default should be, yeah, go, go low. Go, the word humble means to go low, so, so go low. That's, that's wise. Um, so this, this passage that we're reading, if I can get through it, um, verse 6 through verse 10, it's bracketed on both ends, notice, by the whole idea of humility and humbling ourselves. That's really important. Because what was the situation again? Let me remind you of the people that are here in chapter 4 that James is confronting. They were loving the world, and they were out of right relationship with God. So he's confronting them, and he says the way to break out of this, what you need, if you love the world, what do we need? We need grace. How many know that every part of the Christian life has to be energized by God's grace? And so often in our foolishness, we cut ourselves off from the very flow of grace that will break us free from the bondage that we're in because we won't humble ourselves. And so the default should always be, let's humble ourselves before the Lord. When we humble ourselves, He gives us, He says in verse 6 here, God has greater grace. Greater than what? Greater than your bondage. He calls them adulteresses here. Greater than your adultery is the grace of God, but you have to start out in verse 6, and it's bracketed in verse 10, by humbling ourselves. So how do we do that? What does he mean when he says, humble yourselves? Let's look at it again, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There you go. Verse 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil... And he will flee from you. Now, I know that there's many applications to that verse. In this particular context, what would he be talking about when he's talking to these people who were in love with the world? Submit yourself to God. I think at least the main part of what that means is listen to what he's telling you. Receive his rebuke. Submit yourself. Bow. You know, you submit yourself, you bow the knee. You go, yes, Lord, you're right. You're right. That's me. I own that. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. What would that look like? Come on. What would that look like? If we're, being, uh, if we're in love with the world, we submit to God. We hear his rebuke. And if we're resisting the devil, what are we doing? Yeah. Get, no, get out. I'm not going to entertain that anymore. You're not going to be in my life. I'm going to start taking my idols. This is, is uh, Exodus chapter 34. He says, I want you. To smash the Asherah poles. I want you to cut down with an axe all of the idols. Cut them yourself. And the Lord says, if you don't cut them, then I'm going to come after myself. It's better. I, I, I can testify. It's better to take care of it yourself. Like, this is Paul's um, thing in 1 Corinthians 11, 31, 32. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. It's always better if we take the initiative and go, God, you're right. Like, you're right. I'm going to start judging. How do we judge ourselves? Start casting things out. Start cutting things down. Start getting rid of things that are keeping us in bondage. Um, we have to partner with him in this. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And then what? You see the order of that? You have to submit yourself to God first. Accept his rebuke, accept his correction, accept his truth, then we can resist the devil, then there's authority, then we're in the place where we can exercise the authority of God to break the bondages that we're in. Verse 8, 
draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's the other side of the bracket. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. How many think James is a candidate for uh, winning uh, friends and influencing people in his language? Um, but how many believe that this is actually breathed by God? That these are words that he wants us to embrace. So what is the point of this passage? Here, what I want to um, talk about really tonight is I want to talk about the DNA of repentance. Because there's lots of confusion in the body of Christ about what repentance is. There's a message that's going out in a big scale that basically says repentance in the Old Testament is different than what repentance is after the cross. And and I'm here to tell you tonight, that's false. That's not true at all. Repentance is what it's always been. And the New Testament writers took their idea of repentance from the Old Testament clearly. So James is speaking to believers, sir. How many would say that's true? Okay, so listen to the... um, the phrases that he uses, and I want to show you that James embraces the Old Testament view of repentance even after the cross, and he applies it directly here to Christians. All of the language that James is using here, he pulls out of the prophets, all of it. Okay, let's, let's look at some of that. Um, verse 8, draw near to God. This is, I'm going to give you some verses. I just want to read them because I think this is kind of an important issue. Um, and I want to try to clarify some things. At the, uh, toward the end, I want to ask the question and explore it a little bit. If, if this is a true statement or not, that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven because Christ went to the cross. I want to explore that a little bit. Because that, that is bandied about. And uh, I want to look into that a little bit. How many are okay with that? Okay, Zechariah. This is chapter 1, verse 3. I just want to let you hear the echo of where James is getting his idea of what repentance is. Zechariah 1, 3. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you. Does that sound a lot like draw near to God and he will draw near to you? Okay, there's lots. I'm just giving you one for each of these phrases. I could give you ten. They're all through the Old Testament. I'm t- my point here, and this is really important, this is worth the price of your admission tonight. If you get this one point, because it is um, largely obscured and lied about today in the church. New Testament repentance and Old Testament repentance are the same DNA. They're the same. Now we're going to talk about how the cross comes into this at the end there. I want to leave that dangling for just a little bit. Um, but, but just get that if you will, I want to read um, also Isaiah chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. Just hear the echoes of what James said. Here's Isaiah 1. He and James are um, kindred spirits, evidently. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Here's the part, verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Did you hear James say, cleanse your hands? 
Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil. Um, then I want to read Jeremiah um, chapter 4 and verse 14. Wash your hearts from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be safe. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? The whole idea of washing. And then here's a very classic passage on repentance um, where James says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Um, Joel chapter 2, probably are familiar. Verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Um, can you hear the echo of what James has said just from those few verses that I read? Like he is drawing his whole idea and his whole exhortation to New Testament believers after the cross from quotations from the prophets. I want to explore the DNA of um, repentance because I think that um, we definitely need in this time to be refreshed in it. Uh, my opinion is that this is one of the lost treasures in our culture because, like, seriously, in this age where we're super concerned about whether somebody's feelings are hurt and we're super hyperly sensitive about any kind of criticism or th anything that's awkward. Who in the world wants to hear weep and mourn and wail and cry? Dude, that's not happy. That's just what, what are you talking about? This, this is all about happy. It, it's not. It's about ultimate joy. And there is a difference. And repentance is a doorway to freedom. It's not a bondage. Repentance in the scripture is always a doorway to freedom and grace and life and beauty and joy and fullness and fulfillment in God. Because he is the fountain of living water. How many would say amen? Will you say amen? Yeah, this is, this is really weak. So I figured I would get this kind of reception like a Led Zeppelin. But we're going to talk about the DNA of repentance because this is important. I'd say that, I, mean, I don't know that, that you will hear this um, very often. So here's, here's how it works. Um, and I want to, you know, you, you'll, you'll get more scripture on this. But here's how, here's how repentance works. It starts out, I've got five points here. It's like a chain reaction. Here's what you need to know about repentance. It starts on the inside, and it works its way to the outside. It starts on the inside, and it works its way to the outside. First part of the DNA of real repentance is this. There's an awakening to sin. There's a confrontation. There's a sight. The old timers, the old Puritans used to call it the sight of sin. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is, like in the prodigal son in, in Luke chapter 15, you know the story. He demanded his inheritance from his father, basically said to his father, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. Uh, I'm going to squander it on loose living, prostitutes and drink and all of that. You know the story. He ends up with nothing. He's feeding the pigs. And the Bible says he came to himself. Like there was an awakening where he saw what his situation was. 
he came to himself and he goes, what am I doing here? Even my hired, even the hired hands of my father had better than this trying to feed themselves with the husk at the swine eat. There's an awakening that happens where we see, God, ah, what did I do? What was I thinking? How did I do? There's an awakening. It's a piercing. You know, when, when Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 3, what did it say about his preaching? The words that he spoke cut them to the heart. There was convicting power. Paul says to the Thessalonians, when we preached and we came to you preaching, it wasn't with man's wisdom, but you received it not for words of men, but for what it really is, the living and abiding word of God. He said, our preaching came with full conviction and power of the Holy Spirit. There's a cutting that happens when that word goes in. And then they cry out. Here's what happens. It's happened in Acts chapter 16. Ha happened in Acts chapter 3 when Peter preached. What, what, do we, what do we do? What must we do? There's an awakening. They go, my God. I've been asleep. I've been, what's going on? There's an awakening where we realize we sinned. There's a cutting that happens. That's the beginning. That's the sight. Sometimes we're dull and blind. Evidently, these people in James chapter 4 were pretty dull and blind. If they had had a full-blown love affair with the world and they didn't even know that anything was wrong. Sometimes we become dull and desensitized. It's not the way that the believers are supposed to live, but it happens, right? Um, David, you, you tell me. You read the Psalms of David. You read the things that he says about the Lord. You read his passion for God. You read his passion for this word. And you tell me how that man took another man's wife one of his most loyal servants, put that man to death, took his wife, committed adultery first, got her pregnant, then he has to cover it up. Tell me how that man could do that and carry on with business as usual. It was probably, it was months, but most scholars say it was probably nine months before Nathan came and confronted him. How do you do that? How, do, I mean... This isn't saying a sharp word to your wife. This is murdering and committing adultery. How do you do that when you have a heart like that? I don't know. Nathan comes. Let me tell you a story about the rich man who went over and his neighbor had this one precious lamb that he loved like his own child. Kept it in his tent, fed it. And that rich man said, hey, I'm going to take that lamb and slaughter it for my feast at my house. David gets furious. That man shall surely die. He can't believe it. Here's the finger. You are that man. It's an awakening. You, you ever read Psalm 51? That's David's psalm of repentance after that whole ordeal. There's a broken heart. There's a heart that's been rent. Oh, God, please don't take your spirit from me. And here's the amazing thing about that psalm to me. It's after the sin that David committed against Bathsheba, the sin that he committed against Uriah, and his own country, he's the king for crying out loud. 
He defiled his whole country with that. He says in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. You, you, you see there's an awakening there that goes, God, I've sinned. It's against you. See, repentance isn't doing a duty. It's not just changing a behavior. Repentance is relational. It's about our relationship with the Lord. That's the first thing that gets touched because that's what separates. There's an awakening. There's a confrontation. That's the first thing. So, I mean, we can... How many have ever heard of the word rationalization? How many many have ever engaged in that? How many have ever recruited other people to engage in it with you? Let's have some group rationalization so you can confirm me in my sin and tell me it's really understandable and justifiable. Have have, 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 ever done that? Or you know the right person to call, right? You know, and I'm not going to call Jeremiah, but let me call. You want to call that voice that's going to say, yeah, well, I really, I really can understand. It's really been hard for you, and the Lord knows, and he, he loves you. And, you know, you're going to get that kind of stuff. And what we need is James and Nathan. That's what we need. Just, just stand up and tell us the truth. Why? Because repentance, repentance is not a negative thing. You guys, if, if you view what James said here as being a negative and a downer, it's not. He's going, listen, the road you're on leads to destruction. Why do you want to die? That's the Lord's words to his people. Why do you want to die? That's loving. When somebody's going to plunge off the cliff and you knock them in the head with a two-by-four, that's loving. Because the alternative was destruction. It's loving. Our definition of love sometimes is lacking. If you read the scripture and how the Lord deals and how he speaks, he's loving because he cares for our soul. He cares for our eternal good. And he's the great father who wrote the verses in Proverbs about child rearing where he says, don't spare for their crying. They won't die but you'll save their soul from hell. Oh, brother, that's just not loving. It's loving. Okay, I'm going to pamper and coddle my child and let them have a heart of stone and a love for the world that controls and roots itself in their life where they're so self-centered that nobody can stand to be around them. They can't keep a job. They can't have any responsibility, no self-control because it was just too hard to take the rod and do what the Lord said. Lord, that's just unloving. And we're, in our arrogance, we think we're wiser than God, and he made us. It's foolishness. It's just foolishness. But our culture preaches it hard to us. How many know? It's child abuse. I, I get that there's abuse, and I don't want to minimize that, and I know that there's people that have been abused, and I don't minimize that. But listen, because um, things have been abused doesn't mean the truth isn't still the truth. It is. And God's dealings with us are that way. They're always redemptive. God's dealings with us are always redemptive. Our dealings with our children should always be redemptive. They're not punitive. Where we're not punishing, we're training. You, you get it? There's a totally different paradigm. That takes anger out of the midst. 
It's like you're training a horse to go around the thing. You're not mad at him when you've got the little switch out. You're just going, oh, no, you can't go out that gate. No, you can't go out that gate. You're going you're to go out this gate. It's training. You know what's really hard about training? And I'll, I'll get off this. I, I know. I rant on this. You know what's hard about training? Is getting your own rear end out of the chair when you're tired and you don't feel like it. And you see what little Johnny's doing and you're like, I, I don't want to see that. And the Lord says, parent, you have to be self-controlled in order to create self-control in your child. Okay. Enough said, right? Well, yeah, I mean, to, to your point, um, David reaped heavy consequences for what he did, even though the Lord loved him dearly and restored him. Uh, his life was never the same again. Um, two of his sons came against him, uh, rebelled against him. You read, read the stories. I mean, it's, it's heartrending, um, the loss of life and everything. So it's, it's not a free pass. Um, we still do reap. You know, the, the verse that says, uh, be not deceived. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Did, did you know that's in the New Testament? Uh, that's in Galatians. Um, so that principle applies. And so, you know, again, what, what is loving? Um, to help someone not to have to reap those consequences is, is loving. Okay, we're, we're talking about repentance here. So the first um, part of the DNA is awakening, sight of sin, recognition, being cut with the reality of, of what we've done. Um, let me just say this as well. I, in, in our age where I think, and I, I say this, um, I'm, not, I'm not as direct as James or Nathan, but we're, we're hypersensitive, and we don't receive correction well um, because of that. We take it personally instead of viewing it as a love. Uh, can, can I tell you something? The Lord rarely sends somebody to correct you who's perfect in every way. The Lord rarely sends somebody to correct you that has a perfect, uh, beautiful, uh, lovely, winsome attitude every moment of their life. He, he doesn't care about that because he knows if our default is humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, you can take correction from somebody who's 90% wrong but 10% right. And you can take the 10% and go, uh, Lord, I take that 10% because I know that's from you. See, that's a humble person who reaps the benefit. What happens when we do that? We receive greater grace. But the Lord so often will send somebody to us, and they're 80% wrong, or their attitude's not right, and so we, re we reject the whole thing, and God's like, 
You have to have perfection, darling, before you're going to receive anything. And it's, it stunts our growth. Like, I believe we need to listen and take it before the Lord. This is what we do. We go, I'm going to take this before the Lord and say, Lord, is there anything in what was said that was true that I need to deal with? Like, that's, that's, that's taking the way that grace comes in. Oh, no, God, their attitude, they're so arrogant. They're, they're correcting me on something, and look at their life. And God said, yep. I'm giving you the humility test right now, and I sent some grace your way, and you're going to reject it because it doesn't come in a package that's pretty for your taste, dear. Come on. Sorry, James is affecting me. I don't blame it on James. I'm telling you the truth. This is part of maturity. Um, some of the great corrections that I've gotten in my life I had to bite my tongue through the whole thing. Like, Lord, I know you're but really, this person? He's like, yep, that's what you need. You need that person so you can get over yourself and listen to what I'm saying. Listen for my voice. See, his voice comes through the most unlikely ways sometimes, and we want it to come through the beautiful the flowery the person that just affirms us and that's where we're going to receive most easily which i get that's human nature but the lord is the stealth god who comes in all kinds of unexpected ways and this is one way where he comes to offer us grace and we reject it time and time again we do he sends it in vessels that we're like "Mm, i really don't think so no not going to hear that from you true second part of the dna of repentance is a change of mind um you might know that the greek word for repentance is metanoia which is two words um which means change mind so what i hear most often today is that repentance um and and this is in this is in what i would call the hyper grace camp where they don't want repentance to mean anything other than an intellectual decision. And, and it, it, it doesn't just mean that. There's, there's a whole um, series of things that happen inside of us when we actually repent. And the intellectual part is part of it, where we see, because we see, we change our mind about our situation and about our activities and about the perspective that we have on something. So that, that does mean repentance. We do change our mind, but that's certainly not all it is. It's not just intellectual. Here's Spurgeon. He said, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. That's a pretty good definition of um, repentance. Change of mind. It has to be that. When we see something, we go, like the prodigal son goes, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. What am I doing here? My father's house is so much better. That's that's a change of mind. Um, That's part of it. Okay. Number three, it is a change of heart. Remember Joel said, don't 
don't tear your garments in some kind of an outward show. I want to see your heart rent. You, you know why this is? Th- this is what I was referring to before. Repentance involves a heart change and a, a rent heart, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. David said, you what? You, you won't despise it. The offerings that you seek, Lord. This is what he said after Bathsheba. The offering that you seek is, is not bulls and rams, and, but you seek the offering of a broken and a contrite spirit. There's something beautiful about brokenness in our own heart when we sin. Um, so uh, let me just put in this little caveat here. Th- there's different degrees, I think, of how this would manifest. I don't think we go between the altar and, and mourning and weeping and wailing if we said a cross word to our spouse. That, that wouldn't be the same kind of proportionate. But, but when you do what David did, yes, you do that. When you've lived a lifestyle of being an adulterer and adulteress before the Lord and you've loved the world and you've despised him, yes, then, then, then there's a proportionate response of heart. Because listen, it's not just the external. It's not about the external of wailing and weeping and crying. It's about the relationship. And the grief comes because we recognize, God, what have I done? I have separated myself from you. I've grieved you. I've hurt your heart. I've thwarted your purposes for me. Like I've lived so stupidly and I've forfeited so much that I could have had in my relationship with you. When we see that, then there's, there's true grief that should be right. I mean, that's right. Because we've hurt a relationship that is the most precious relationship in the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to show you. This is Paul's theology as well. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 6. In the first letter of the Corinthians, you know, in chapter 5, Paul dealt with all kinds of mess in the church in Corinth. I don't even know that. Wow. He says to them in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, just to refresh you, there's a guy there that took his father's wife, so it's his stepmother, and he's living with her. This son stole his dad's stepmom and is living with her, and he's in fine fellowship with the church because he's a tither. God doesn't say that, but... Paul said... He sees that situation. He goes, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Cast out the evil man. Get rid of the leaven. You cannot allow that. See, why cast him out? Why not go to him and appeal to him as a brother? Because he was unrepentant and he would not. So Paul said, look, I've taken this in my own hands. I have turned him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved. Oh, brother, that's just not loving. That's so harsh. That his spirit might be saved. Yeah, but that's just so hard. That his spirit might be saved. How long is his life versus eternity? Which is loving? That's loving. If this guy is not going to repent of something that's going to destroy his soul... Then the loving thing is, what Paul did, I'm going to turn this guy over so Satan can destroy. Evidently, the devil came in and gave him some kind of terminal illness or something that was really bad. You know, when, when your flesh is rotting away and you see on the horizon that you're going to die soon, then the perspective of everything changes. This woman ain't that good. 
You're not that good. This is not that good. This situation's not that good. Sex is not that good. God in his mercy changes perspective. It's loving and it's good. So he put the hammer down on them. If you read that chapter, he put the hammer down on them hard. And so now he's evidently referring back to that verse 6 of chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus had gone to Corinth to bring him back report. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us. Listen, listen to these words. He reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. See, they, they got it. They saw what was happening, and they actually mourned. It's, it's the word that's always used in the Greek language for mourning a dead person at a funeral. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, verse 9, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of what? Of repentance, because repentance is what? It's a doorway into grace and freedom. You were sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful, listen, according to the will of God. Oh, brother, God never makes people sorrowful. Oh? How about blessed are those who mourn? For they shall be comforted. Blessed. Really, Jesus? Yeah, those that mourn are blessed. I think part of what he was referring to at least was mourning for our own sin. Because that's what brings us out. It's part of the process of repentance, which is a doorway into grace. Verse um, 9 again in the middle. Um, you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, is how he refers to it. This godly sorrow has produced in you, listen, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation. Listen to these words of how they responded when they finally saw. Vindication of yourself, indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of the wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known in the sight of God. Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. So tell me what the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is. This is what I think the main difference is. This is at the heart and soul of it. Godly sorrow is we're sorry because we have injured our relationship with God. Worldly sorrow is we're sorry because of the price we're going to pay. We're sorry because we're embarrassed. We're sorry because we feel guilty. We're sorry because we're shamed. We're sorry because we have to make restitution. We're sorry because our reputation is going to be hurt. It's all about us. The worldly sorrow is all about me and the price that I'm paying for what I did, but godly sorrow is, I don't care about any of that. It's, God, I've got to be in right relationship with you, and nothing can come between us. I, I won't allow that. I can't allow that. I'm so grieved over that. See, 
the words that he uses, zeal, longing, mourning, vindication. They're fired up about it. When they finally saw, they were like, what in the world? We've got to take care of this now. This is about our relationship with God. See, repentance is always about a relationship with God. So I say this, and I think it's totally true. Like people who have truly repented, they don't care who knows what they did. They don't care. Oh, brother, don't, don't tell him. Why? Here's the thing. He knows. Who else do you care if they know? Take your reputation and stinking dig a deep hole and put it in there and cover it up with dirt. It's no good. When it comes to our relationship with God, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people think. Our image is, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to live like Sardis. You have a name that you're alive, but you're what? You're dead, for real, from heaven's vantage point. So, change of heart. This is number four. Confession, which is what I call owning it. We own our sin. <laughs> Proverbs 28, 13 says that he who covers his sin, there you go, hide it, don't let anybody know about it. He who covers his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses, that is, owns it openly and forsakes it will have mercy. <laughs> Exposure to the light, this is Ephesians 5, whatever is exposed to the light becomes light there's something about the power of God's light like I do this all the time I don't know if you guys see this like how many know that there's things inside of you that are like dark and have, have you seen ugly things inside of yourself <laughs> anybody praise God how about lying um, so what I have learned to do that's helped me if I have attitude issues or other things I sometimes I just lay down on my back before the Lord and I go Lord that that's ugly. I acknowledge it before you that it's there, but I expose it to you. I don't care who knows. Shine your light on that area. Work in me by your grace. Get rid of that darkness. Let your light so permeate me that that darkness becomes light now, and it's changed. And I don't know how it works, but I know that he does do it. And uh, exposure is a great thing, exposing to the light of God. I write my issues down on cards sometimes i've told you this before i'll just hold them up to the lord i'm too tired to pray i just hold it up to the lord and go okay we, we have to deal with this like i acknowledge that this in me stinks lord i'm not content to keep it i don't want to hide it. i just i just want you to deal with it like i just i just do this i'm too tired to pray right now but like you know what my card says we've talked about this before just I, i'm for real there's something about exposure before the Lord that he brings his light inside of us. I, I've personally found that that gives grace in my heart. Like, he helps me to hate that thing and uh, begins to bring change to it, exposure. So confession is owning it. I like Psalm 32. I won't, won't read it for time, but David says, when I hid my sin, my bones wasted away within me. Your arrow was stuck in me, and I was laying on my bed like I was sick and dying because I wouldn't confess. But when I finally confessed it, you came through and began to break the bondage off of me. So pretty cool. Um, that's confession. We confess. We 
own it. And then number five, and then I want to get to this other question. Um, when we confess, part of repentance is, is turning away from what we were doing and, and producing the fruit um, of real repentance. Do you know uh, John the Baptist and Paul both use that phrase to bring forth fruit that corresponds to your repentance? In other words, it demonstrates and it proves that it's real when we bring forth fruit. There's a change that happens. Again, when we humble ourselves before the Lord, what, what is the key to all of this? What is the key to our whole Christian life? It's grace. I'm telling you, it's grace. It's a free gift from God, but we have to take hold of it. We have to partner with him, and there's a process of repentance here. I'm not trying to make this, okay, did I do point number three or I left that out? It's not like that. I'm just trying to break it down a little bit to say that there's more to repentance than just changing our mind and go, yeah, really, two plus two isn't five. It, it's not that. It's about relationship. And not being willing to let anything be a hindrance in to keep us from fullness with the Lord. We, we, just, we just won't allow it. It doesn't matter if other people talk us into it. It doesn't matter if other people go, oh, brother, I totally understand. Like, yeah, but it doesn't matter. It's what happens in my own heart before the Lord. This is Susanna Wesley's advice to her son John when he asked her what sin was. She said, sin is anything in your life that kills your spiritual desire, that quenches your fire for God, that, um, uh, you know, clouds over your conscience, that gives your flesh authority over your spirit, anything like that, to you, that's sin. Oh, yeah, but you can't find chapter and verse. Does it affect, here, here's where we have to just be honest before the Lord. What effect does that have on my relationship with the Lord, what I'm doing here? I mean, I've had people tell me, oh, dude, you can't tell me you can't smoke dope because I'm not trying to tell you you can't smoke dope. But how has that been affecting your relationship with God? Are you more on fire for God because you're smoking your doobies? Is your relationship with your family and other people, are you loving them better because you're toking in your bong every night? Oh, brother, you can't tell me that's not wrong. God made that in the garden. I'm like. Dude, listen, get a life and get honest before your relationship with God. Don't try to rationalize. Is this helping your relationship? Listen, here's the question. Is this helping and furthering your relationship with God or is it not? You can go, well, brother, so-and-so watches that show. I don't care. It might be all right for brother so-and-so, but does it, what effect does it have on your own soul? That's the question. Look, if we want to make progress with God all the way, then we have to forget what other people are saying to some degree and just go, God, well, this is between you and me. You know how you made me, and I know this, uh, this thing has this effect on me. I can't do it. I can't do it. I mean, personally, I, I can't watch nudity. I can't. I can't. I can't do that. before the Lord. God, what is my life about anyway? Trying to get away with everything I possibly can and that you can't prove is not in the scripture? Like, <laughs> Whenever somebody comes up like that and goes, you can't tell me that. I'm like, red flag. You got an issue. I'm not trying to tell you anything. I just want to ask you, where's your heart? Like, are you all in with Jesus or you just want to get by and say you're still a Christian but you're going to do whatever the heck you want? This is discipleship. This is growing in God. 
Somebody else doesn't make the standard. You need to answer to the Holy Spirit and go, well, you know me. Like, what effect does this have on me? I need to, if it's, it has a negative effect and it sucks the life out of me and it makes me spiritually dull, I need to take the axe to that Asherah pole and cut that sucker down. And somebody may come by and go, dude, why did you cut down that perfectly good Asherah pole? Because it was a bondage to my soul. And it wasn't worth it. And when I stand before God, I don't want no Asherah poles tied to my ankles when I go into heaven. And he's going to go, uh-uh, that, 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 no, that doesn't come in here. Come on. Don't shout me down just because I'm preaching good. All right, I want to answer this question. It's only 835. Here's the question. I, I hear it all the time, and again, it typically comes from the false grace camp. I call it false grace. It's hyper grace. Question. Is it true that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are already forgiven? So, I think that's, uh, here's how I'm going to answer that. I would say technically what that says is not true. Here's what I mean. Hear me through, and I want to talk. look at some scripture, and then we're going to be done. I would say it like this. The provision for every sin has been paid for at the cross. But there is a receiving and a partnering on our part that is essential to receive it. Okay? Jesus paid the price for every sin. How many agree with that? No matter how grievous or how heinous, he paid the price for that. But here's the point. Repentance in the New Testament doesn't say, all my sins are already forgiven, so I don't even have to confess them. That's false teaching. You know what the end game of that is? Doesn't matter how I live. Is that the flavor of the New Testament? Like, you ever read the New Testament? <laughs> I want to ask people this sometimes, like, have you ever read the Bible? Like, um, what is the flavor in the New Testament? Paul, the apostle of grace. Put away the unclean thing, and I will be a father to you. I will be your God, and I'll draw near. He's outraged. What shall we say then? Shall we sin more that grace may abound? What? No, what are you even talking about? No, we don't think that way. We want to be as close to God as we can, not try to get away with whatever we can. That's not the spirit of the New Testament. It's about being obedient. Peter says in chapter 1 of his first letter that we are supposed to be holy as he is holy in all your behavior. Dude, that's a pretty high. How many think that's a pretty high bar? <laughs> that's a high bar. We don't take the bar down. We go, God, grace. I need greater grace. I need greater grace. What? Don't you think the father rejoices when he sees his children going, Lord, I want my life to be as close of a reflection of Jesus Christ as possible. What would that look like? Give me more grace, Father. I lack in this area and that area. That's all good. But God, I need more grace because I want my life to look like the reflection of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me so that he could live in me and through me. That's the spirit of the New Testament. We want to be everything he wants us to be. We want to be pleasing to him in every way. 
There's a producing of fruit and there's a turning. So here's the question. Is it true that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are already forgiven? I would answer that um, depends what you mean. But the way that it's used very often is even put to the point where, oh, no, we don't have to confess our sins. So, so um, I don't want to personally attack anybody, but I will tell you that there's prominent ministers that say things like this, and I've heard of myself multiple times. Um, it doesn't matter what you do. It has no effect on your relationship with God. You can go out and rob a bank or kill somebody, and it won't affect your relationship with God at all. That particular brother has started 15 Bible colleges. That's just false teaching. Uh, it has none of the spirit of the New Testament in it. Where does he get that from? Well, if Jesus perfected once for all those who were being saved, then we were already perfected. And um, if he, in his cross, you know, paid the price for all the sins of the world, then we're already forgiven. So it doesn't really matter what we do. It can't possibly affect our relationship with God. Do you read James chapter 4 and get that? No. You adulteresses and adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? But don't worry about it because all your sins are already forgiven anyway. You can be an adulteress. You know, the father's just fine with having an adulterous wife. I mean, it's really okay. It doesn't affect your relationship to be an adulteress, does it? That's what's said. I want to refute it. It's, it dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. He died so that he would have a spotless and beautiful bride. He died so that he would have a bride whose heart was all his, who didn't uh, go after rival lovers. He's worthy of all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. So turn to First John, and we're going to finish up here. I just want to look at these passages just to, to show how um, that statement does not represent the New Testament scripture. This is First John chapter 1. Verse 6, let's read 6 through 9. Um, we're going to talk about these verses just a little bit. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we're good because he's already forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future. Thank you, John. Dude, it doesn't matter what I do. No, that isn't what he said. We lie. We lie and don't practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us. Can I point out to you as a teacher that word cleanses there is the Greek present tense word. The cleansing happens continuously. It, doesn't, it didn't just happen at the cross. It's happening continuously, and we have to stay connected with that. That's an important um, point. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth's not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that a present tense reality or is that something that already happened? If we confess our sins, this is, this is one of the points of repentance. If we confess our sins, 
If we confess our sins, this is an if-then kind of a setup here. The, the, the Greek verb tense, I won't get into all that, but that's exactly what it means. It's a contingent upon something happening. So if this happens, what is the if? What is the if? If you confess your sins, then, and what is he going to do? Then he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So does that not say that after the confession that the cleansing from unrighteousness and the forgiveness of sins happen? So are all of our sins, past, present, and future, forgiven by Jesus? Well, it depends what you mean by that. Did he pay the price for them all? Yes. Do we have to partner with him to take hold of that through repentance? Yes. That's when it happens in actuality. So then the questions, these hypothetical questions come out. This is crazy. Well, what if a person sinned and they got in a car accident and died? Okay. Would they go to heaven or not if they didn't confess their sins? Here's what I would say. If we walk in the light, I believe that there's sins that we commit, especially as younger believers and even as we grow older. I think we commit sins and we don't know. We're not conscious of it at the time. But we're walking in the light that we have. And when we do that, the blood of Jesus washes us and cleanses us. And then he brings us. How many have ever had that knowing from your uh, when you were first saved? I know I did. Like, I didn't know diddly squat. I didn't know anything about Scripture. So I'm going along loving God, pouring out my heart to him on a rock in, in, you know, next to the pond and saying, God, I need you. God, I love you. Can you help me? And just my whole day and afternoon after school revolved around him. And yet I'd still go out with my friends, go to concert and, and get high. And then one day the Spirit of the Lord said, I don't like that. I don't want you to do that. Oh, okay, won't do that anymore. But, uh, but he was still cleansing me. I didn't, I didn't know. And the Holy Spirit, there's a progression, I think, that happens in our hearts as we become more sensitive and we know the Word of God. I think there's provision for what we don't know, but the issue is when we know and we're convicted, yeah, we this is what believers do. We confess our sins. When, when, when we know that we've done wrong and grieved the heart of God, that the automatic and good response is to say, Lord, forgive me. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I want to be washed. I don't want to be separated from you ever. It's, it's some, some, some theology that's out there leads to shipwreck and ruin and spiritual deadness and minimization of relationship with God, and it's false. This is conditional. If we confess our sins, this is the normal pattern that believers take. When we sin, we repent. Because repentance is what? It's a doorway to grace. It's a doorway to grace. If we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's righteous. He will not only forgive our sins, but he will cleanse us from all un righteousness if you take that un off of there what does that leave <laughs> then you're only forgiven and righteous because of his blood see repentance is beautiful repentance is beautiful can, can i just say something here and we're going to close in just a second your salvation is not fragile in jesus christ if it was based on you it would be very fragile but it's not based on you. It's based on what Jesus did. It's based on the power of his cross. And so it's not, it's not fragile. 
You, I, don't, I don't think you can, quote, lose your salvation like you lose something out of your pocket. But there is a place where he says in Hebrews, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then there remains no more sacrifice for sins because we've trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant. We've insulted the spirit of grace. So there, there's a conscious rebellion and refusal and hardening of heart. Then you're in dangerous territory. That's when you need the two-by-four on the head. That's when you need brothers and sisters to come up and give you the James straight up in the face. Like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? See, that's, that's mercy. That's what happened to the man in 1 Corinthians 5. Oh, dude, grace covers it all. The church, you know what Paul said about the church in, 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 in Corinth? Because they would not deal with this guy who's living in open adultery with his own father's wife. They were dancing around like, oh, grace, isn't grace wonderful? Like, we're all forgiven. And Paul's like, you're idiots, all of you. What are you talking about? This is Jesus' house. Purge it. Keep it clean and pure. He's mad. Very mad. Paul understood grace better than anybody probably in the New Testament. There was no place for this sloppy mess there. God's heart for us is great. He just wants us to respond. See, this is all about our heart and God. Repentance is all about our heart and God. That's why it's such a beautiful thing. Repentance isn't a negative word. Preaching repentance isn't a downer. It's not a downer for somebody to say, look, dude, go through this door, and there's such abundant grace there and freedom for you. Oh, man, that's such a downer. <laughs> no, it's not a downer. That's beautiful. Point me to that door. I want to live there. The grace of God is abundant. I, I become more and more convinced of this all the time, just reading the scripture and the expectation and the power of the cross and what Jesus did and the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us that we forfeit so much of our inheritance. There's so much inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. It's so big and rich. And, and we're like content to have this little bit, and I feel like the Father's heart sometimes is grieved because he's like, why would you settle for that? I mean, that's great that you enjoy this, you know, little shoebox that you have, but like, there, there's, there's, there's a whole palace. There's so much more. And we're like, no, Lord, I'm good. He's like, really? Would, would, you, would you hold on to those little things that keep you from coming into the greater inheritance that's in Christ Jesus? We have it. Like it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. There is so much in the grace of God. The grace of God is so powerful and beautiful in what Christ Jesus has done on the cross. We haven't even fathomed it. We think, I'm, I've, got, I've got free from my drug addiction. Now I'm good. And the Father's like, no, you can fly. I don't know how to express it. Let's, let's, let's go there together. Let's be like Paul that says, you know what? I'm leaving everything else behind. I'm pressing. I'm stretching to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. You ever think about that phrase? What did he lay hold of you for? So you could be a little better than your worldly neighbor or so that your life could be so overflowed with the greatness and goodness and grace of God that you would be a different person altogether. And that your life would have the fragrance of heaven. And that your life would sow seeds of eternity wherever you went. 
What what are they settled for? The grace of God is an ocean. (laughs) The Lord spoke to me one time in prayer, and it was one of those marking times for me, just a sentence. He said, don't settle for a little cup of what I have for you when I have created and given an ocean at the cross. It doesn't honor the Lord. He wants us to go for all in. He wants our heart to reach out. He wants us to have the spirit. I love this guy, Paul. Dude, he already had the resume. You get it? His resume, he would put his resume against all of ours together in this room. And yet at the end of his life, he's not talking about his resume. He's talking about, Jesus, I've got to know you. I don't care if it means fellowshipping with your sufferings. I don't care what it means. I've got to know you. There's so much more. And I'm looking at Paul's life and going, really? Dude, you started churches all over Europe and Asia. You raised the dead. You preached the gospel. You started churches everywhere. You endured more persecution than most anybody that's ever lived in this world. And at the end of your life, in prison, knowing that you're going to die soon, you're like, I have got to have more of Jesus. There's that longing and that stretching. That's the heart of God. And that's the heart of God for us. And that's the heart of God for you. Like our sights are set on the little thing that's right in front of us. And the Father says, that's good. I'm going to help you with that. But look out there. Look at the ocean. Look at the grace that was purchased at Calvary. Drink as much as you possibly can. (laughs) I was reading Ephesians 5. I'm going to close with this because I'm rambling. Don't be drunk with wine. That's wasting your life. But be filled with the Spirit. And I was thinking... How do you stay full of the Spirit? And, and I think the answer is, <laughs> I was praying one time, actually. This is another one of those times. The Lord gives me Jameses sometimes. I have, a, I have a slew of Jameses that he's given me. But I was praying for the Lord that I wanted more fullness of his Spirit. And the Spirit of the Lord literally spoke to me and said, um, you need to maintain a lifestyle that can keep it. Okay. Let's go there. How do you get filled with the Spirit? Well, you don't fill yourself with wine, but you fill yourself with the Spirit. So it's about what you drink and how much you drink. Spirit-filled life is about what you drink and how much you drink. Spirit-filled life is about what you drink and how much you drink. Selah. Let's pray. Come on, come on, let's pray. Father, we ask for more. God, there's so much that you've provided in Christ Jesus. There's so much relationship that we don't even know. We're not not even aware of it. Thank you for all of the goodness that you poured on our lives. We're not ungrateful, Lord, but there's a longing inside of our soul that we want to take hold of the reason why you laid hold of us. What is that reason, Lord? We want to lay hold of it. We want to reach out for it. We want to stretch for it. We don't want to settle for such a little bit when you provide in an ocean. 
Father, I pray that you would stir up deeper longings inside of us. Let us not be content with the little when you want us to be inheritors of the much so that we can have greater effect and be greater carriers and bringers of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would stir up deeper longings inside of us for more of Jesus, that we would not be content with the things of this world, that we would not be content with what we've had so far, but that we would reach out with everything inside of us for you, for the more, for the ocean. Lord, teach us how to swim in the ocean. Teach us how to swim in the ocean instead of playing on the beach with a little pay on the sand. Lord, I pray that you would bring us as individuals and as a community into deeper places with you. That our hearts would not be satisfied with that which is not your heart. That our hearts would not be satisfied with that which doesn't really satisfy. But that our lives would be blown up by your grace, by your spirit. I pray that you would teach us how to live lives even fuller and fuller measure of your spirit. Make us different, Lord. Make us different. And I pray that we would always live close to the door where the grace of God is poured out. We thank you. In Jesus' name. can be whatever you want to do.